0: Uh, this is in the fourth year of Jehoiakim, so we're going from five eighty seven ish back to six hundred five ish. So we just we just reorient ourselves in terms of time frame, and we'll kind of work on that some as we go through this too. So chapter thirty six, verses one to eight.
1: In the fourth year of Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, king of Judah, the word came to. Jeremiah from the Lord, saying, Take a scroll, and write in it all the words which I have spoken to you concerning Israel, and concerning Judah, and concerning all the nations, for the day I first spoke to you, for the days of Josiah, even to this day. Perhaps the house of Judah will hear all the calamity which I plan to bring on them, in order that every man will turn from his evil way, then I will forgive their iniquity and their sin. Then Jeremiah called Baruch the son of Neriah, and Bar- Baruch wrote him, wrote on the scroll on the dictation of Jeremiah all the words of the Lord which had spoken to him. Jeremiah commanded Baruch, saying, "I am res- restricted; I cannot go into the house of the Lord. So you go and read from the scroll which which you have written at my." dictation the words of the Lord to the people in the Lord's house on a fast day, and also you shall read to them to all the people of of Judah whom come from their cities. Perhaps their supplication will come before the Lord, and everyone will turn from his evil way, for great is the anger and the wrath of the Lord has pronounced against this people. Baruch, the son of Nehra, Neriah did according to all that Jeremiah the prophet commanded him, reading from the book of the word of the Lord in the Lord's
0: house. <coughs> Let's talk a bit more about the time frame and what was going on in the world. The fourth year of Jehoiakim was an extremely important year in international history because it was the year... In which Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon decisively defeated the Egyptian forces at Carchemish. So that was the battle that established Nebuchadnezzar and Babylon as the, as the dominant world empire. Basically, you, you, throughout much of Old Testament history, you always had two great, you know, world dominant powers. Yeah, on, on, the, on the south, or maybe you want to say on the west, you had Egypt. On the north, the east, you had whoever was dominating the, uh, yeah, the Mesopotamian region. You know, that might be in Assyria, might be a Babylon, <coughs> might be a Persia. But whoever was over there dominant in Mesopotamia versus Egypt. Well, when e- Egypt what would had happened, Babylon was conquering Assyria, and Egypt had tried to bolster Assyria. They kind of wanted a weak buffer nation in between them and Babylon. So they had gone up to Carchemish about four years before, and managed to hold it against Babylon. But in 6056-ish, the fourth year of Jehoiakim, Nebuchadnezzar, who was actually the Babylonian general, soon to become Babylonian king, Conquered the Egyptians at Carchemish. And that just basically broke down the resistance. There's nobody else to stop it <coughs> if the Egyptians can't. And so this was the year that really turned the tide and Babylon now is going to be the world's superpower. Really, probably Babylon had more power and dominated more territory than any nation ever had up to that point. from As far as we know, in terms of world history is concerned. So this was a really important event. Sometimes when there are big crisis events in world history, it can turn people to God. It can make them feel their insecurity and know they need the Lord. So we're thinking maybe this will happen in this case. This What a good opportunity. For Jeremiah, by the word of the Lord, to have Baruch write out all the prophecies and deliver them just in kind of one mass to the people, to try to wake them up and cause them to repent and turn back to God. So that's what he said. I want you to write all the stuff from the first day till now, even from the days of Josiah. Jeremiah prophesied for a long, long (coughs) period of time, about 40 years. It started all the way back in, I believe it was the 13th year, 14th year, something like that, of Josiah. About six twenty six. And carries all the way down for 40-some years. And so he says, I want you to write them all. Now, this wouldn't have been all that we have here, because this is still just 605. And so he's got a lot more than that. So I don't know just exactly what parts he had it contained, but it's going to still be a long scroll, writing all of this, and hoping that maybe Judah will listen, they will repent, I can forgive. That's what God wants. He's wanting them to repent. And so he says, let's write it all down, and let's deliver it to the people. And so... Who does the writing? Baruch at Jeremiah's dictation. Baruch's the secretary, and then Jeremiah can't go to the people and read it. Why can't he go to the people and read it? Because he was not allowed to go
1: into the temple.
0: Yes, he is under some kind of arrest of some sort, at least a ban against entering the temple. Um, but but uh, so he has Baruch go and read this on a fast day. I don't know if the people were maybe just fasting because of the national crisis. You know, Babylon is coming. What are we going to do? Let's have a fast. Maybe that's the idea. But it looks like there's going to be a lot of people there in Jerusalem, um, you know, fasting. And a good time to go and get them all and just read this message. And, uh, you know, hope is this will really influence them. So Baruch goes and he reads the whole message off the scroll to these people who are gathered in Jerusalem for the fast day. Comments and questions?
1: I think it's interesting of how, um, you know, like we use the same same way to go to a brother that is not repenting from a sin, you know, to go to him. And that's what we see of what Baruch is going to be doing is, you know, repent from your evil way and turn. If you don't, then I will turn you over to the Chaldeans. And if like we do it, the will turn him over to Satan
0: good point yeah and the right thing to do is go to him and exhort them to repent that's a good point
2: so is Baruch like the Elisha to
0: Elijah? you yeah I guess I mean he seems to have been his sidekick you know he's his secretary he's his kind of servant um... I don't know that he ever took over and became a Jeremiah like Elisha became an Elijah. But he does seem to be like his special helper. We'll should expect to
1: get banned too. Yeah,
0: yeah you know, it, it's not so good to be uh, Jeremiah's real helper when you consider what's going to happen to Jeremiah, that's probably going to put you in an awkward position, so... Uh. We do have a specific prophecy to Baruch in chapter forty-five, so we'll later consider him individually a little bit. Just a five-verse chapter, but still, okay. okay. How about uh, let's see, nine to nineteen? Yeah, you know, it came about in the fifth year of Jehoiakim, <coughs> the son
3: of Josiah, king of Judah in the ninth month that all the people in Jerusalem and all the people who came from the cities of Judah to Jerusalem proclaimed it fast before the Lord. Then Baruch read from the book from the book, the words of Jeremiah in the house of the Lord in the chamber of Gemariah, the son of Shaphan the scribe, in the upper court at the entry of the new gate of the Lord's house to all the people. Now when Mechickiah the son of Gemariah, the son of Shaphan, heard, had heard all the words of the Lord from the book, he went down to the king's house, into the scribe's chamber, and behold, all the officials were sitting there. Elishema, the scribe, Del- Delaiah, the son of Shemaiah, and El Nathan the son of Achbor, and Gemariah, the son of Shaphan, and Zedekiah, the son of Hananiah, and all the other officials. Micaiah declared to them all the words that he had heard when Baruch read the book to the people. Then all the officials sent Jehuda the son of Bethlehem, the son of Shethemiah, the son of Cushi, to Baruch, saying, Take in your hand the scroll from which you have read to the people, and come. So Baruch the son of Neriah took the scroll in his hand and went to them. They said to him, Sit down, please, and read it to us. So Baruch read it to them. Now it came about when they had heard all the words, they turned in fear one to another and said to Baruch, We will surely report all these words to the king. And they asked Baruch, saying, Tell us, please, how did you write all these words? Was it at his dictation? Then Baruch said to them, He dictated all these words to me, and I wrote them with ink on the book. Then the official said to Baruch go hide yourself you and Jeremiah and do not let anyone know where you
0: are alright so, so we have Baruch reading this message there at the temple before all the people at this fast he does it in the chamber of Gemariah the son of Shaphan the scribe that is such a key family Shaphan's <laughs> family was quite a family. (coughs) And you know a lot about them. Um, Shaphan himself was a leader of the, um, what would you say, the revival under Josiah. In like 2 Kings 22 and 23. (coughs) Shaphan has four children that have a specific role in the Bible history. He has this man, Gemariah, where Baruch went to read the law. He has um, Elisa who Jeremiah used in chapter 29 to carry a message to the exiles. He had Ahikam who in Jeremiah twenty-six twenty-four protected Jeremiah in a time of crisis. He also had Jazaniah who was the black sheep of the family, who was worshipping idols in the temple in Ezekiel chapter 8. Then there are several grandkids that are important in the story, and so forth. So, Baruch goes and reads the book in the chamber of Jemariah, the son of Shaphan the scribe, to all the people. When he does that, who takes an interest in this? Exactly. Micaiah, Gemariah's son, the son of Shaphan, he heard this, and he went down to the officials. He feels like the the officials need to know about this. Now, it's interesting. (coughs) There is a stamp seal impression belonging to Gemariah, son of Shaphan, the scribe that was found in Jerusalem in 1983. We think probably the same. Gemariah, the son of Shaphan. It's interesting how many little things that are confirmed in little fragments and scraps of information we've got from this period. You realize that it is tough to have anything that survives 2,500 years and you can still read it. <laughs> you know, So there's not just a whole bunch of information like written things, but there are some. and We've done a lot of archaeology. Not nearly as much as could be done, but there's been a lot done. And, and a lot of things have been been uncovered, and this is one of them. So that's just a curiosity. So, uh, was that? What was that? Uh, a, a stamp seal impression mentions Gemariah, the son of Shaphan, uh, and we we assume that it's the same Gamariah the son of Shaphan for the time period and so forth. That is a royal official here. You've just got a lot of you've got a lot of individuals named in the Bible that we have evidence outside the biblical of, of the Bible to confirm their existence. So anyhow, Micaiah, Jeremiah's son, you know, takes an interest in this. He takes it to the officials. Those are mentioned in verse 12. And he tells them, here's what Baruch said from Jeremiah. The officials send Jehudai to Baruch saying, we want you to come read this to us. So Baruch goes with the scroll and reads it to them. How do they feel when they hear Jeremiah's message? Where got it, where he got yeah. Bunch of things they feel. They were afraid. They want to know where he got it. You know. And 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 Baruch says Jeremiah dictated it. I think they're trying to figure out if this book is authentic. You know, did it really come from Jeremiah? Is this really Jeremiah the prophet that God's speaking through in what the, in this scroll? And he said, Yes, it was. And what are they going to do with this information, with this scroll? What do they say they're going to do? Take it to the king. Take it to the king. Wonder why they're going to take it to the king. He needs to hear it. He needs to hear it. He needs to hear it. This is a significant message for the nation. The king needs to know about it. But what kind of reaction are they anticipating on the part of the king? and we know that because
3: he says you and Jeremiah need to go hide
0: yes and don't let us know your address (laughs) that's more or less the idea (coughs) because they're anticipating the king isn't going to like it you'd better not be anywhere you can be found so that tells me they're sympathetic to Jeremiah and Baruch they don't really want the king to kill them but they realize that's what very well could happen. So they don't even want to know where they are. So there can't be that can't be traded. Comments and questions?
1: I guess sort of goes to show that the word of the Lord is, it says, forget where in Hebrews that the word of God pierces you no know, sharper than a two-edged sword and can pierce the, you know, the depths of the man's heart.
0: Four twelve, yeah, it does. So they take it to King Jehoiakim. Wow, were they ever right about his reaction? Twenty to twenty six.
2: So they went to the king in the court, but they, but they had deposited the scroll in the chamber of Elishama, the scribe, and had reported all the words to the king. Then the king sent Jehudi to get the scroll, and he took it out of the chamber of Elishama. The scribe and Jehu- Jehudi read it to the king, as well as to all the officials who stood beside the king. Now the king was <coughs> sitting in the winter house in the ninth month, with a fire burning in the brazier before him. When Jehudi had read three or four columns, the king cut it with the scribe's knife and threw it into the fire that was in the brazier, until all the scroll was consumed in the fire. That was in the brazier. Yet the king and all his servants, who were who heard all these words, were not afraid. Nor did they rend their garments, even though El Nathan and Deliah and Gemariah pleaded with the king not to b- burn the scroll, he would not listen to them. And the king commanded Jeremiah the king's son, Sariah the son of Azrael, and Shilamiah the son of Abdil, to seal to seize Baruch the scribe and Jeremiah the prophet, but the Lord hid them.
0: Well, how did Jehoiakim take the reading of this message uh, by the mouth of Jehudai? Oh,
2: look, kindling. Yeah.
0: I take it he wasn't overly pleased? Cuts it up, kind of a a column or two at a time, throws it in the fire. That is like the ultimate of, um, you know, disdain. This is worthless. You know, it's not worth the paper it's written on. Maybe we can get a little heat value out of this paper. So he ends up destroying the entire scroll, treats it like it's trash. But he said he's so cold he burns it. He was pretty cold. Um, Is that going to really change anything, burning the scroll? You know, I mean, would it really help to burn the Bible? Would that keep it from uh, ever coming to uh, to effect? I don't think so. You can burn it, but it doesn't change the message from God. That was kind of foolish on his part, really. Which just shows how, he's almost resentful. You know, it's like he doesn't want this, much. he doesn't like it. You know, he's just going to show how just totally uh, worthless he thinks it is. And so he does that. And until he consumes the whole thing. And what did the king and his servants not do? In their
3: garments.
0: Yeah. Now, do you remember somebody who did tear his garments when he heard the word of the Lord? Josiah. Josiah. How were Josiah and Jehoiakim related? <laughs> Jehoiakim was the son of Josiah. What a contrast. When Josiah hears the word of the Lord, he tore his clothes. When Jehoiakim hears the word of the Lord, he tears the scroll and and consumes it. That that is a very uh, strong contrast. You know, when Josiah heard the message, he burned the images and idols. Jehoiakim hears the message, he burns the scroll. He burns the message. Uh, so, so you, man, it wasn't like father like son, unfortunately. This son would, the apple had fallen far from the tree. I mean, that tells you something. Can a good father have a bad son? <coughs> Absolutely. Does God have any? Yes. Why, how could a good father ever have a bad son? If you're a good father, the son will always do what's right. Right? Don't sons have free will, too? You know, it, it, can you imagine what it would be like if, if a parent could simply impose their beliefs on the son? The son couldn't leave them. So that would take away the free will of the child. So Josiah was a good father, or at least he was a good man. He didn't have very good kids. And this is one good illustration. Jehoiakim should have taken a page out of his father's book. And then what did he do? In verse
3: 20,
0: 26. He ordered basically the arrest of the Luke Yes, exactly. He's going to do exactly what they were afraid of. He's going <coughs> to hunt them down and wipe them out too. Fortunately, they had been warned to hide. Comments and questions? I'm on
1: the question of um, Josiah's son not being... Do you think, you know, in Proverbs where it says, train up the child in the way they should go, do you think that Josiah did not do that in training his son?
0: I don't think that is like saying you are taking away from the free will of your child. Proverbs are general principles. Mm -hmm. They are not inflexible rules. So in normal circumstances, parents have a lot of bearing on what their children do. You raise them well, they will tend to do well. Is there ever a case where a parent will raise a child well and the child won't do what's right? Sure there are. You know any families where there's several children and all but one are good and one went off the deep end? Same parents, you know? And so it's not like that saying, you know, there's no free will. Almost every proverb is a general principle, not like a, a, you know, inflexible law. So
2: you're saying as a parent, if you do everything right,
0: the child could still... Absolutely. Absolutely. No doubt about it. Did did God not do everything right with his children? God's been a perfect father. And uh, if, if that wasn't the case, then here's what we sometimes do that is a problem. We sometimes imply that the problem when somebody goes astray is their parents. Now, do parents sometimes do badly raising their children? Yeah. Those children sometimes do well. You know, there's, you can't even say that a bad parent always makes a bad child. Uh, but um, if, if you could blame the parents... Then it's just the parents responsible for the child. But the truth is everybody's responsible for themselves. The soul that sins it will die. So you have in Ezekiel eighteen, you have this example of a good father who raises a wicked son. The good father is saved because the father's good. The wicked son is condemned because he's wicked, and then the wicked son raises a good grandson. <laughs> and and the point in, in Ezekiel eighteen is the soul that sins it will die. You can't say that you will be saved by your good father or condemned by your wicked father. It's every person has free will. That's the point of Ezekiel 18. So clearly, Ezekiel 18 is saying, you would have a good father and a bad son. Now, in general, do parents have a lot of impact on their children? Yes, they do. Well, raising your children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord, will that be a blessing to your children? Yes, it will. And so, you have impact. But but inflexible impact to where like it takes away the free will? No, it doesn't. I think Ezekiel 18 is particularly helpful in that, as well as just all kinds of examples in the Bible. You know, some of the best men we know had bad children in the Bible. Yes?
3: I think it would have been a rather nerve-wracking experience to read this for um, Jehudi. Yes. Particularly after the first, oh, dozen columns, and every, <laughs> every three to four columns, the, the king's knife comes out and, give me that. And, and it goes, you know. And, and he presumably would have some idea of what was coming next, and he'd be like, oh, man, it's not going to like this.
0: You're hoping the knife doesn't slip as well? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you're right. Yeah,
2: John. (laughs) I'm kind of, I don't know, I don't don't really see just something that doesn't really apply kind of thing to where he's reading this, and he's like, oh, here comes just some kind of nut job writing something down, Uh, this isn't worth my time, he just send him away, but I think he's able to see that this is the will of God, but he just really doesn't want to accept it, and he doesn't want to submit to it, and submit everything to it, so that's why he's you know, going through such lengths to destroy it.
0: If he didn't, if it, it wasn't any impact, if it was just kind of a nutty person writing some stupid stuff, you wouldn't bother listening to it and burning it. Don't worry about it. Why are people so intent on destroying credibility of the Bible? Or in, in, a, in, in trying to prove there is no God. If there is no God, don't worry about it. It doesn't matter if people believe it or not. The fact that people are so obsessed with having to prove there's not means it's bothering them. I think that's exactly right. I think this is not just, oh, I don't believe it. This is, it's infuriating him. I think he knows it's more true than what he's letting on like. And he's trying to stop it being true by burning it. <laughs> I doubt that he really thought that would work in his heart of hearts. But, you know, it's, a, it's, it's an expression of his frustration, his irritation at it. I, I think people are way too obsessed with trying to get rid of God. That just shows you they are haunted by the whole idea of what God says. If they weren't, they'd just ignore it, not do violence against it. Great point, John. Other thoughts? Um, I have a sort of a question back on um,
3: the, the parents having effect on... Because when they ask
1: for, or when help become to become an elder, your children must be believing in the Lord. Yes. So, does that still disqualify of the... I mean, could somebody use that in Jeremiah as an excuse, you know? Well, they trained all their other children to be... Um, believers, but one of their children went off.
0: Okay, well, first of all, in the passage, particularly in 1 Timothy 3, Paul indicates that you kind of prove your ability to deal with God's flock by your ability to deal well with your children. And so, kind of how the children do, are given a sort of a guideline for, you know, if you haven't raised your family well, then probably not a good idea <laughs> to try to point you to raise the, the flock of God well. This is, this is kind of an indication. So, that is an indication that the parents do ordinarily have a big effect on their children. And normally, if you raise your family well, you can see it in the kids. That's normally the case. There are exceptions, <laughs> um, and so could there be someone who was really did a good job with raising their kids, but the kids still didn't do well, and therefore they're disqualified to be an elder? Well, sure. You know, God's overseeing things. If God wants a man to be an elder, then God can see to it that you know that works out that way. If somebody, maybe we say they were really a good parent, but their children didn't do well, they're not qualified to be an elder. They don't fit those qualifications. You don't have to be an elder to be a great servant of God. There are plenty of servants of God who have done a lot of good who haven't been elders. So, um, it, would you could you say that if you raised quite a few children... And most of them are faithful to God, one or two are not. Does that disqualify the el- an elder? That is a big debated issue. Um, one point that you might think about in connection with that, you realize there are two passages that give the qualifications for elders. And in one of those passages, in Titus 1.6, It says, if any man is above reproach, the husband of one wife, having children who believe, not accused of dissipation or rebellion. Now, that adds something besides just the believing. Not accused of dissipation or rebellion. In other words, an elder can't have some, you know, delinquent child. An elder can't have some scandalously misbehaved, outrageous child. Some people do. I know people who have some really good kids and then one turned out to be just a total scoundrel, a disgrace to society. Sometimes that happens. I think in my judgment from this passage, if parents have one child that turns out to be a total disaster, they're just, that person's disqualified from being an elder. What if they have You know, four fine, wonderful Christian children and one who is a respectable citizen but isn't a Christian. I personally think that person would be qualified to be an elder. I think they have believing children. It's just not all of their children are believing, but none of them are rebellious, scandalous children. Now, if a parent, you know, if a father raised five kids and one's a Christian and the other four are not, don't see how that person's qualified to be an elder, but I recognize there's various ways of looking at this qualification. I would say about qualifications for an elder, you know how we are with a lot of things. We are more interested in the qualifications that seem to be quantifiable than they are. We are with the quality qualifications. There are how many qualifications for an elder and we spend how much time on him being just, him being holy, him being respectable, him being self-controlled, etc., and how much time we spend on him having believing children, we're a little imbalanced. My guess is most of the time an elder is not, a person who might be looked at as a possibility to be an elder, most of the time it's not just one qualification that they don't meet. Most of the time, it's probably several, but we get tunnel vision. I was in a church one time, and uh, in a business meeting, a man said, you know, I think it's about time we appointed elders. I think we ought to appoint so-and-so, so-and-so, and 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 so-and-so. They have believing children. That's what he said. And uh, usually, we don't quite say it so brazenly, but I think sometimes that's what they think. We want to appoint elders. Well, which, which men here have believing children? As if that was the only qualification. It's about like saying which men ha- here have one wife. You know, well that is a qualification, but just because they have one wife, you can quantify that. But that, that there's some other things to think about too. You know, don't, don't just zero in on just on that one. It's not like we ought to ignore that one. But if what if would you think? Well, we ought to point so and so and so and so and so. They all have one wife. <laughs> you know. Uh, there's there's more to it than that. Well, there's more to it than the children, too. So I think we become imbalanced and we may appoint some men who aren't what they ought to be because we thought it was just believing children. <laughs> or whatever all that's worth. Other thoughts or comments? What about poor Jeremiah and Baruch? Ever thought about how they felt about this?
3: I would think that... <clears throat> Baruch would be particularly upset because it's it's one thing to to typeset something; it's another to write an entire writing the Book of Jeremiah out by hand, <laughs> and then have somebody just the, after God, <laughs> on the third <laughs> reading have somebody burn those several hours, days, weeks of work that would, that would really annoy me I if
2: you
0: could
3: describe. Maximum And he didn't even write it. I mean, he
1: wasn't the one, it wasn't his, he was just writing what somebody else said. Exactly. Yeah. So he's in trouble, you know, shoot
0: the messenger. Yeah. And, and you ever, you know, it's like, uh, you ever worked hard on a computer file and then, you know, suddenly you didn't save it, or the, hard drive crashed or you you made some error and you saved over it something that well, was nothing That
3: school doesn't work and it deletes your code
0: yeah it's bad so I've always thought about this from poor Jeremiah and Baruch's standpoint what a <laughs> you know bummer
3: mm-hmm.
0: well let's see what happens with them so
1: what did the scroll say uh,
0: everything Jeremiah had said up to this point right whatever that was 27 to 32.
1: Then the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah after the king had burned the scroll and the words <coughs> which Baruch had written in the dictation of Jeremiah saying, Take again another scroll and write on it all the former words that were on the first scroll which came the king of Judah burned. And concerning Jehoiakim, king of Judah, you shall say, Thus says the Lord, You have burned the scroll, saying, Why have you written on it, The king of Babylon will certainly come and destroy this land, and will make man and beast to seize from it. Therefore, thus says the Lord concerning Jehoiakim, king of Judah, He shall have no one to sit on the throne of David, and his dead body shall be cast out to the the heat of the day and frost of the night. I will also punish him and his descendants and his servants for their iniquity, and I will bring on them and the inhabitants of Jerusalem and the men of Judah all the calamity that I have declared to them. But they did not listen. Then Jeremiah took another scroll and began and gave it to Baruch and the son of Neriah the scribe, and he wrote on it the dictation of Jeremiah, all the words of the book which Jehoiakim, king of Judah, had burnt in the fire, and many similar words were added to them.
0: So, it's going to take more than a knife and a fire to destroy God's message. He tells Jeremiah to take another scroll and have Baruch write everything on it, and more. So, back to the drawing board. He says in verse 29, and concerning Jehoiakim, say, thus says the Lord, you have burned this scroll, saying, here's what Jehoiakim said when he burned the scroll, why have you written on it that the king of Babylon will certainly come and destroy this land and will make man and beast to cease from it? You know, kind of like, well, why did you write on it something that was going to destroy public morale and that I didn't approve of? Well, A, he wrote on it because that's what was going to happen, whether Jehoiakim liked it or not, and because that's what God had determined was going to happen because of his wickedness. You know, who's Jehoiakim to tell what God ought to write and what he shouldn't write? Pretty arrogant on his part. So God says about Jehoiakim, he'll have no one to sit on the throne of David and his dead body shall be cast out to the heat of the day and the frost of the night. So God's going to wipe out uh, the lineage of Jehoiakim as far as dwellers on the throne. His son reigned three months, was taken into captivity, and that was the end of the line. Really, all the way up until Jesus came, who was of the descendant of Jehoiakim and Jehoiachin. But uh, the last king was Jehoiakim's brother, not his son or grandson, Zedekiah. So, God is going to punish him and bring on Jerusalem, all the calamity he said, and so sure enough, Jeremiah and Baruch start writing another scroll, and they add to it a bunch of other stuff, besides what they had in the first scroll. (coughs) Comments and questions?
1: Joachim was the last
0: king of Judah. No, Joachim was the third to last. Third to last. Jehoiakim, his son Jehoiachin reigned three months and then Jehoiakim's brother Zedekiah reigned for eleven years. So it goes Josiah Josiah's son Jehoahaz which was three months Josiah's son Jehoiakim which was eleven years Josiah's grandson Jehoiachin which was three months and Josiah's son Zedekiah which was eleven years. So it goes three months, eleven years three months, eleven years of the last four kings, three of them were sons of Josiah, one, a grandson. And which one did line go through? Through Jehoiakim and Jehoiachin, through that grandson.
1: So Jehoiachin
0: was the one that was taken into captivity? He was taken into captivity, and then later his uncle Zedekiah also was taken into captivity. But the one of the lineage of Jesus was Jehoiachin. Joachim's other name is Jeconiah, and that's what he's called in Matthew one. They mostly all through here had real names and throne names. That becomes a little complicated as you study the, especially the last few years of the divided kingdom, because you have both names given various times in the text. It's like you know the popes do; they have a real name and then they take a. You know, name when they become become pope, or you know, did you ever wonder? I mean, I think I'm right on this, aren't I? Uh, That a lot of those European countries where you got Louis the whatever, it it wasn't that every father just named his kid Louis, but that they take that name whenever they become king. So it was
3: probably
0: one of their middle names. Quite a bit. (laughs) Other comments or thoughts? All right, well, that's probably a good place to stop. We probably wouldn't get to before time's up, so we can uh, start in 37. Uh, I think it's like June the.